you can find your place in your Bibles in Acts chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 1, looking at verses 1 to 12 today. I do want to go through real quickly, um, and we're going to do it quickly, through the timeline of Acts, just to kind of get caught up on where we're at so we don't lose uh, the context of where we're at. So chapter 1 is the Great Commission and the Ascension to Heaven and the replacement of Judas with Matthias, so there are 12 apostles again. Chapter 2 is Pentecost, and 3,000 people are saved at Pentecost and the description of the new church community. Chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple. They heal a lame man. There's a proclamation of the gospel in the temple, and about 2,000 more people are saved. But that brings us to chapter 4, where they're arrested for proclaiming the gospel in the name of Jesus. Uh, Peter then gives a gospel presentation to the Sanhedrin. They're threatened and sent on their way, but they're emboldened by the Holy Spirit as they pray for God to give them boldness. Chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. God shows them, shows the community not to do that by using them as an example. There's lots of healings and driving out of demons, and they're arrested again, and so again they proclaim the gospel in front of the Sanhedrin. This time they're beaten and sent on their way, but they rejoice because they're counted worthy of suffering. Chapter 6, the seven men who were filled with the Spirit that were chosen to meet the needs, and Stephen was one of those whose preaching and um, actions in the name of Jesus got him in trouble with some of the people and the leaders. So in chapter 7, Peter gives his pretty lengthy sermon, which is a recounting of the history of Israel and blames the Sanhedrin for rejecting the Messiah, so they stone him, and Saul approves of that. Chapter 8 is the persecution of the church, where the church is then spread out, which brings the gospel to other areas um, other than just Jerusalem through Philip's ministry and other people. Chapter 9, Saul's converted, um, and after he has that experience on the road to Damascus, he then goes into ministry mode to uh, proclaim the gospel. The church multiplies. Peter, we see a little bit more action from Peter before he drops off the scene. Chapter 10, uh, God uses Peter to proclaim that the Gentiles are clean and can receive the gospel. And Cornelius' household, who's a Gentile household, receives the spirit and belongs to the church. Uh, Chapter 11 There's a council in Jerusalem because Peter's actions with Cornelius are questioned and he recounts that God called him to do that. So the Gentiles now are accepted widely among the church. And Antioch becomes a place where the gospel takes root and it's going to end up becoming a pretty kind of a headquarters for many uh, ministry activities. Chapter 12 um, there's more persecution with killing of apostles and arresting them. Um, Saul and Barnabas, this is kind of a key thing here. Saul and Barnabas go to Antioch where, this, where the gospel is really flourishing and they really begin their ministry together there. Chapter 13, 
The Spirit calls the two of them, calls the church in Antioch to set them apart for missions. They take off for Saul's, or for what will become Paul, his first missionary journey. And he preaches through, he goes to Cyprus, but then he preaches through Asia Minor through the churches that he hit on that first journey. Chapter 14, a lot of persecution as he moves from town to town, but a lot of people are believing, and so he's establishing churches in each town that he goes to. And then they return to Syrian Antioch to give a report. Chapter 15, uh, the Jerusalem Council, because there's a group of people saying, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to... You've got to basically follow the law, become a Jew in order to be a Christian, and Paul op- opposes that, so they go to Jerusalem to discuss it. The council, the elders, and the, the apostles in Jerusalem say we're not going to burden people with that. Um, and so they send a letter to the church in Antioch to say, here's what we want you to, to do, but you don't have to become a Jew and follow the law and be circumcised in order to be a Christ follower. Then we have the falling out of Paul and Barnabas, which we talked about last week. Barnabas takes Mark, goes one way. Paul takes Silas and goes another way. And now the gospel is being spread, covering more ground with more people. That's where we're at. Uh, Just to give you a quick wrap-up. And we're going to look at the beginning of chapter 16 today. Now, we, when we discussed the Holy Spirit in the Holy Spirit sermon series where we were partially doing it online and then we did some in the parking lot, um, I told you that I did a quick, I just did a real quick look through Scripture through the New Testament to see how many times the Spirit is referred to. And this is Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Jesus, or the Spirit. The references in the New Testament were 52 times in the Gospels, 57 times in the book of Acts, 127 times through the epistles, the letters, and 13 times in Revelation. So that is a total of 249 times in the New Testament that they refer to the Holy Spirit. This is the the church, the New Testament, the church age, and the ministry, uh, the the God's redemption plan from that point until today is the Holy Spirit's domain. He is the main person in the trinity who is at work right now among us 249 times he's mentioned in the new testament that's almost once a chapter for all the chapters in the new testament i also told you that there are 27 books in the new testament and 23 of them mention the holy spirit so there were only four in all of the new testament that don't mention him directly those are philemon james first john and second john and if you look at those four books that didn't mention it, only one of those is written by Paul. So out of all the things that Paul wrote that we have, only one short, tiny little letter that he wrote did not mention the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to drive home this morning before we get into our text is that Paul was somebody who heavily relied upon the Holy Spirit, who was in tune with the Holy Spirit and following after the Holy Spirit as he guided and directed his ministry. You can see it in his writings, and we're going to see it today because this text, 12 verses, there, it's, just, it's just exploding with work of the Holy Spirit and Paul's response to it. So if you have Acts 16 and you're capable of standing, please stand. 
to honor God as we read his word. So Paul and Barnabas have just parted ways, and Paul took Silas with him. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision... Immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that you did in the New Testament time and the work that you've done since then to bring your word and the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And we're not going to get into it quite today we will next week but this is a major turning point in the timeline of your your plan of redemption and I thank you that Paul and his companions listened to your Holy Spirit as he guided them help us to be people like that as well in Jesus name amen go and have a seat all right so I titled this Holy, the Holy Spirit Master Strategist because he is, we're going to see in this text, he is coordinating everything the way that he wants it to play out. And Paul is listening and submitting to that. So each point that we're going to look at today, we're going to look at what the Holy Spirit's doing and we're going to reference how Paul responded in a way of obedience. The first one is that the Holy Spirit coordinated a new team. He coordinated a new team. So this starts back in, we're going to look at verses 1 to 5, but it starts back in 15 because when Paul had to go up to Jerusalem to talk about the issue of circumcision, he was up there and he spent some time with this guy named Silas and got to know him. And then after that decision had been made and they wrote the letter and sent the letter back down to Antioch with Paul and his companions, one of the people who went with him was Silas. So he then spent some time on a journey with Silas, getting to know him. And then after they delivered the letter, Silas hung around for a little while. And so Paul spent some more time getting to know Silas. Um, And I don't know if you've ever had this, but I imagine Paul was like thinking, man, this guy, like, I like this guy. I'm connecting with this guy. This guy thinks like me. And so he'd spent enough time with him to really get to know him and to know him well enough to know what his devotion was to Christ. So when he and Barnabas then have their falling out and Paul needs a new ministry partner, 
he chooses Silas. Now, I said that the Holy Spirit coordinated this team because God, God coordinates all things to work together the way he wants his will to work. When we have ministry partnerships, God is the one who places those together. And God, by his Holy Spirit, coordinated Paul's timeline to cross with Silas's timeline and to have that time in Jerusalem on the journey down and time in Antioch to get to know him well enough to know this is a guy that I could do ministry with. And so he needs a new partner and he chooses Silas. And the Holy Spirit affirms that decision through the church in Antioch because the church in Antioch sends them on their way in the grace of the Lord. And so just as the Holy Spirit had spoken to them the first time and said, set aside Saul and Barnabas. Now the Holy Spirit is through the church affirming uh, Paul and his chosen partner, Silas. But it's not just Silas, because once they get into back into the established churches where ch- Paul had planted those churches, they meet a new guy named Timothy. So verses 1 to 5, we, we see that he meets Timothy. And we get a little bit of an understanding of Timothy's family life. And Paul wants wants Timothy to come with him and accompany him on his ministry journey. So the Holy Spirit, again, is coordinating this team, putting this team together because this is the team he wants. Now, here's how he prepared for that person to be, for Timothy to be added to the team. Uh, We don't know when Timothy came to Christ. Uh, Most people assume it was probably on Paul's first missionary journey when he came through um, because he's from, I think, Derby. Um, So probably when Paul came through and established the church the first time in, in Derby. But it could have been after that because he established a church and then Timothy could have come to know Christ after Paul was gone. But there's been some time now that has that has passed from the establishment of that church to the time that um, Paul returns on his second missionary journey. In that time, Timothy has come to know Christ and the Holy Spirit has just been growing him and maturing him to the point where he's well spoken of, the text tells us, from the people in the region, not just in his own town, not just in the little church that they have in that town, but he's well spoken of by all the brothers in the area, other, other towns nearby as well. So the Holy Spirit has been growing him and maturing him, and he coordinates everything like a master strategist. And so he coordinates Timothy's maturity in his faith and his calling in the ministry with the timing of Paul's second missionary journey so that when Timothy is ready and the Holy Spirit calls him into ministry, guess who shows up? Paul shows up to strengthen the church and encourage the church. And here's this guy ready to go. And Paul sees in him a young man that he wants alongside him. So the Holy Spirit is guiding and directing as he's creating this new team. And Paul listened to the Holy Spirit. He listened to him when he when he needed a new ministry partner and he takes Silas. He listened to him when he's in derby or in the area maybe speaking with one of the other churches and he gets to know timothy and so the holy spirit gathers this team together and paul paul says okay let's take this team and let's go 
He also listened to the Holy Spirit. And this is an area where it doesn't tell us that the Spirit is doing this, but we have to assume, I think, that God is speaking to Paul when he circumcises Timothy. And I, and I say that because the circumcision has become the hot-button topic of the, of the time. And Paul had been adamant battling against people who were saying you have to be circumcised if you're going to become a Christian. If you're going to follow Christ, you have to be circumcised. And Paul was adamant about that. No, you do not. And so there, I mean, enough that there was a council that they called to discuss it in chapter 15. Paul has won that battle. And he's, he's made the case that circumcision is not necessary for salvation. And now he's on a second missionary journey, and he's taking the letter with the instructions from the, from the apostles and the Jewish elder, the Jerusalem elders, taking that letter, and he's sharing it with the churches. He didn't just take it to Antioch. He took it on with him into his ministry. Um, and so he's taking this letter with this, with this decision. You do not have to be circumcised. So after having won that battle... Why circumcise Timothy? To me, that seems like you're, you're wavering like a reed blown by the wind or you're backtracking or you're trying to like bend to the pressure of the people who think that you still need to. So why circumcise him if he's, so, if he's already won this battle? Well, if you look at the text, the text says in verse 3, he wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. They all knew that his father was Greek. So it must have been a pretty, under, pretty widely known thing that Timothy was not circumcised, and it says he circumcised him because of the Jews. That is the... English Standard Version translation. I think that's a pretty common translation, but there are translations that translate that out of consideration of the Jews, which is hand-in-hand with what we talked about when we discussed the Jerusalem Council. They were saying to each other, or they, they were instructing the Gentile believers, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the Old Testament law regulations. You don't have to become a Jew to be saved. But we do, they did say, we would like you to do a few things that are from the Jewish Old Testament law regulations that we're no longer bound by, but we would like you to do these things out of consideration for your Jewish background, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's hand in hand with what they decided. So if that is, if that is, what that wording carries, that idea that that he circumcised him out of consideration for the Jews, then I think it's not a matter of Paul bending to pressure or being inconsistent. In fact, John Stott, um, he's a well-known, well-respected theologian. He said this, he said, there's a deep consistency in his thought and his action. Once the principle had been established that circumcision was not necessary for salvation... He was ready to make concessions in policy. 
what was unnecessary for acceptance with God, so it, they didn't have to do it to be accepted by God, what was unnecessary for acceptance with God was advisable for acceptance by some human beings. And so Paul circumcised Timothy to make his ministry more effective, to remove a barrier that might have made his ministry ineffective. Uh, John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, who was also a pastor, he said, was a reed, so easily swayed or persuadable. Paul was a reed in non-essentials, an iron pillar in essentials. So he would not be swayed on the things that were of the most importance, that were the essential doctrines of the faith. But anything that was secondary, anything that where the where Scripture gives us some wiggle room, Paul was willing to work with people and and concede his maybe his right to something in order to have unity in the body of Christ and share the gospel without compromise. So Timothy, here's the issue. Timothy was the son of a Jewish mother. So he was Jewish by heritage, but he was not circumcised. So in the minds of a Jew or in the minds of Jewish Christians that may have some difficult time getting past their their centuries of the Old Testament law, he would have been considered an apostate Jew. And so circumcising him removes that barrier and the gospel ministry that Timothy takes part in can be more effective. And so Paul says, I'm not doing this because you have to to be saved, but I'm doing this to make your ministry as effective as possible. And so Paul lives according to his own instruction that he gives to the church that he would write later to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, I have the right to do anything you say. So he's quoting them. But he says, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. But he says, not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And so Paul is willing to bend a little on issues that are not salvation issues. And so he circumcises Timothy. And the Holy Spirit, I have to believe, spoke to him to do that because Paul was not in the mindset of circumcising people because they, because they weren't. Second point, the Holy Spirit closes, closed ministry doors to Paul's team. So here's another thing that we see in this text that the Holy Spirit is doing, actively working in Paul's ministry. And we're going to look at verses 6 to 8. He closed doors. The first door he closed was Asia. In verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, the way that is worded makes me think that the Holy Spirit spoke that, closed that door and spoke to him with that before they left Asia Minor, before they left those churches that he had already established. Because it says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So I think the Holy Spirit had already done it, had already spoken that to him, um, probably at one of those stops where he was visiting with other believers to encourage them and uh, strengthen the church. So instead of going what I think probably would have been Paul's plan, he, 
he came he went backwards in order to the churches where he established and so the last one he would have hit would have been Pisidian Antioch Antioch was directly west directly east of Ephesus there was a there was a road that ran directly east and west and took them would have taken them uh further west to all the way to Ephesus, which was on the coast. Ephesus was a major metropolitan area. Paul always, as much as he could, tried to hit major cities because there were large amounts of people, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different misunderstandings about truth, usually not a foundation of the gospel already laid. And so Paul tries to go to those places and establish a foundation. um, And he also knows that you've got people who are traveling to those kinds of areas. So if he can convince somebody of his, of his case for the gospel, then they will go back to their homes, wherever they're from, and take that to their families, and the gospel will continue to spread to the ends of the earth. That was what Paul wanted to do. I imagine Paul wanted to go to Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit says, no, I don't want you going, to, I don't want you going into Asia at this point. So he closes that door. Then Paul wants to go to Bithynia. Bithynia, so Antioch and, A- and Ephesus, the area of Asia is here. Paul starts to travel. As he's traveling west, he starts to head north. North of Asia um, are a couple of different provinces, but one of those is Bithynia. Paul's plan was to go north into Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit closes that door as well. Verse 7 and when they'd come to come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So he closes another door. Sometimes the Holy Spirit closes doors, and we don't understand why. Um, I've shared with you my story of the eight years between moving back to this area and taking the job here, and I applied at a number of churches for different positions, and some of them I even had become candidates, uh, a candidate for, um, and God closed all those doors, and at the time I didn't really understand why uh, with some of them, and in hindsight I know why, but at the time I was like, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you closing these doors? Another example of how the Holy Spirit sometimes closes doors would be Claire, one of our missionaries. Her initial calling into uh, missions was to Ireland and the Holy Spirit closed that door and we don't know why but he did then she was called to go to Italy now he hasn't closed that door yet but he's closed the door on the timing more than once Um, and so it keeps getting pushed back if here's the thing if she had gone, if, if the Holy Spirit had o- allowed the door to stay open and she had gone when she initially was going to, she would have been in Italy when COVID-19 ripped through that, that country and she most likely would have been sick and dealing with all of that when there was so much uncertainty about it. And so we look back in hindsight and we can see why, but at the time we don't always know why. But Paul doesn't doesn't worry himself with that he listens to the holy spirit verse 8 says he passed by mysia and they went down to troas he didn't know where he was going yet he couldn't go 
to a- he couldn't go to Asia. He couldn't go to Bithynia. He just kind of took this path that goes between the two and lands in Troas, which is um, a port city or uh, or at least near the near the coast. Um, and so he just listens to the Holy Spirit and bypasses both of those. So I want you to take note of a couple things here. Paul has made plans to go to two different places, and the Holy Spirit has closed those doors. But here are two things that I think are important. First of all, Paul is allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to him and guide and direct his ministry. It's really easy to get into the, into the groove and the pace of ministry and kind of leave the Holy Spirit behind. But Paul is listening and allowing him to guide and direct him. And the other thing I want you to take note of is that Paul doesn't get frustrated by it. It's also really easy when you've got your mind set on something, and especially if you're a planner. Here's my plan. I've mapped out what's going to happen from this point to this point. Don't get in my way, Holy Spirit, because I got it figured out. If you're a planner, this can frustrate you. But Paul doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't start complaining. He doesn't start mumbling and grumbling. He simply comes up with a different plan, understanding that the Holy Spirit's plan is right and better. He comes up with a different plan to reach the ends of the earth. And he goes to whatever place the Holy Spirit hasn't closed until he gets confirmation of what he's supposed to be doing. And so the Holy Spirit closed those doors and Paul listened to him. Point number three, the Holy Spirit redirected Paul's team to where he had already laid a foundation. This is why he closed the doors. He'd been working and laying a foundation in Macedonia. And he wants Paul to take the gospel there. Not that he doesn't want people in Bithynia or Asia to hear the gospel, but right now, Macedonia is ripe for the harvest. So he gets this vision from the man who's a Macedonian man in verses 9 to 12. He gets this vision. This man appears to him at night and he says, he's urging him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul Paul concludes, God's calling us there. Um, If you've ever read or if you know Henry Blackaby, if you've ever read his book, he wrote a book called Experiencing God. It's got a workbook that goes along with it. I did the workbook when I was, it was the very end of college. I was working with a mentor of mine and we went through it together. There were a number of really important life lessons I learned from that book, but one of them was this. And this is something that he says in the book. Henry Blackaby says, If God opens your eyes to see his work in an area where you're not currently working, so like you're doing ministry over here, God opens your eyes to see something he's doing over there. Henry Blackaby says that is an invitation for you to come over and join him. God's showing you what he's doing in the world. And when he opens your eyes so that you can see that, Henry Blackaby says that's an invitation. And I think that's what's happening here. The Holy Spirit had been working in Macedonia. And he wants Paul to go there. And Paul has his eyes set on Asia. We're going to go west into Asia. No, you're not. I'm going to close that door. Okay, we'll go north to Bithynia. Nope, I'm going to close that door. So Paul just keeps going in the narrow little path that he's given to, to travel. And he gets to Troas. And then the Holy Spirit says, I want you to go across to 
Macedonia. And so when Paul saw the vision, he concluded God's calling us there. And Luke says, we immediately sought to go into Macedonia, concluding God had called us to preach the gospel there. And so they set sail. Uh, I want you to notice, this is just for your own information. This isn't necessarily about the sermon today. But verse 10 is the first time that Luke switches from third person pronouns to first person pronouns. And so... Up until this, up until chapter 16, verse 9, Luke has been saying, they did this, he said this. So it's all third-person pronouns. He, she, it, they, third person. Verse 10, Luke switches to first person, and he says, we set sail immediately. And so scholars have concluded that this is where Luke joins the missionary journey, and from this point on, the rest of Acts is written from the first person point of view. Uh, So that's just some information for you. But Luke is now with them. And so now Paul has Silas, Timothy, and Luke with him. The four of them, a team, the Holy Spirit has coordinated. Now, he goes from Troas to, they sail to Samothrace. And the next day they sail on to Neapolis, which Neapolis is uh, a port city for Philippi. And then from there they go to Philippi. Philippi is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. It's a Roman colony. We've talked a little bit about Philippi. But we're not going to get into today. We will get into next week why this is such a strategic point that the Holy Spirit wants Paul to, to be at. Why Macedonia is so important for Paul to get to. But... The key is that we can see clearly in these first 12 verses that the Holy Spirit is the one who's pulling the strings and making sure things happen the way that he wants them to happen. So as we conclude, I want you to think about this. I think Luke is trying to communicate two things in these 12 verses. First, I think Luke is trying to communicate that the Holy Spirit's in charge because he's all over the place active in this text. The other thing I want you to, I think Luke wants his readers to know is that Paul is, in, is willingly submitting to the Holy Spirit's work in his life and the guiding and directing of his ministry. And I think that's important because if you're reading, let's say you're reading this for the first time, let's say you're, you're Theophilus and you're Luke's original audience and you're reading through this and you get to the end of 15 and Paul, this, this great man of faith who's come to Christ and he's beginning to do things that no other apostle has done yet and his partner who's so good with him Barnabas and they split up if you're reading that for the first time uh, I think I would be sick to my stomach thinking what's going on how can this happen and you you know that like you've seen teams that work together and then when they break up you're like it'll never be the same again and there's almost like this empty feeling So as the reader, I think I would feel sick to my stomach reading about them having this falling out and and parting ways. I think Luke takes these first 12 verses to say, in case you're questioning Paul's faith, or in case you're questioning Paul's, you know, did he have a grudge against Mark? He couldn't let go. You know, why is he so bitter? Why is he holding on to that? If case the reader is questioning, is Paul really listening to the Holy Spirit? Is, is this really about um, glorifying Christ in his ministry? Or is this about himself not being able to, you, you know, like, 
I want to be in charge. I want to make the I want to call the shots. If there's any question about Paul's walk with Christ, Luke takes care of that doubt in these first 12 verses because the Holy Spirit is mentioned like six or seven times doing something in this text and every time Paul submits to him. And the same has to be true about us when we're involved in ministry. You have a ministry to your family. If you're the parent, um, you have a ministry as father and mother to shepherd your children. Um, you have a ministry to each other as husband and wife. If, you, if you're the child, you have a ministry to your family unit. It looks a little different than the ones who are shepherding and are in charge, but you have a ministry that you do as well to your family unit. So you have a ministry to your family. The Holy Spirit is in charge. You have to submit to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Maybe you lead a Bible study or you lead a small group or you lead a prayer group or you participate in one of those things um, with other believers that you know. The Holy Spirit is in charge of that. He's directing everything that takes place there for his glory, for your growth in the Lord and your faith. He's in charge. You have to submit to that. Maybe you're trying to be faithful in a hostile work environment or a hostile school environment or in a hostile family environment. The Holy Spirit is in charge. He will guide and direct you on how to respond in those situations. You have to submit to him. Maybe your work environment is your mission field and you've established this this, uh, foundation for sharing the gospel. And you need wisdom on how to handle that. You need to, you're praying for God to bring more growth. The Holy Spirit is in charge of that. You have to submit to him. Maybe you're just sharing the gospel with a friend. And you need wisdom on how to connect with this this person and how to take what he, what God has already done in his life and move him from here to submission to Christ as Lord. The Holy Spirit's in charge. You have to submit to him. And you can put anything in there. You can put any situation, ministry situation you might be in, in there. The key is, and I think Luke is driving this point home, if you're going to be involved in ministry, the Holy Spirit is in charge. He's a master strategist, and he's doing everything he does for a purpose. Next week, we will get into why Macedonia was such a strategic point, and maybe it'll... make even more sense. Uh, Let's pray, and we'll conclude things today. God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is heavily involved in our lives. Um, It would really be a sad life if, um, if you'd created us and you pulled away and just let the world go like uh, deism believes. If you were not involved in the world, that would be an empty life. I'm thankful that not only did you create the world and that you are involved in it, but you have become so involved in it that you, your son became one of us and he died for our sins so that we will not, not have to be separated from you for eternity. He rose from the dead. And then you went even further and 
now, anybody who gives their life to you, you put your spirit in us. And he is the one who empowers us and guides and directs us and comforts us when we need it. He's the one that gives us wisdom to know truth and discernment to, to know truth. He's the one that empowers us to be able to speak with boldness. So you've given your very spirit to us. And too often, God, we don't listen to his guiding and his leading. But I pray that we would be like Paul and his companions. And I'm sure Barnabas and Mark, we don't have accounts of them because Luke didn't follow them, but I'm sure Barnabas and Mark were also in tune with your spirit and following his guidance. And I think this is a great text for us to see. Sometimes we don't understand what you're doing. We just need to trust you and follow you. Help us to do that, God. Um, And when we do that, I pray that you use us to change the world for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.